Hello, everyone, and welcome to the More Deadly Podcast, where we discuss horror movies directed specifically by women-identified directors. And we are so excited about today's very special episode, because joining us to discuss their film, A Nightmare Wakes, now available on Shudder, is director Nora Uncle and producer Devin Shepard. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. So it's our pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. So how how are you guys doing? How's I mean, it's been a weird it's been a weird year. How are you guys hanging in there? Weird is a good way to start that. Um, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) It's it's a perfect kind of uh, crazy storm of events, right? You know, you have this really crazy horrible tragic pandemic happening um mm-hmm. where everybody's losing jobs and and lives and all of that and then here we are celebrating this feat of getting this film out um that we've been yes. kind of working towards for so long so it's kind of this weird like yay so exciting but also ugh, can't be too happy right now <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah how is it in terms of the creative process have you been able to set aside time to work on things do you feel very much on hold where are you guys at with that uh nora and i are very much in the opposite mind of putting things on hold (laughs) (laughs) i think our work doubled since the start of the pandemic oh wow that's great um, but you know, yeah. in a good way, you know, Nora's working on a lot of different scripts. We have a lot of different films in development. And I remember us sitting down at the beginning of the pandemic being like, okay, this sucks. Um, what can we do to make it better? And that I guess is working more. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, putting the blinders on and ignoring the rest of the world and just make some stories. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely of that school of thought too. I'm like, yeah, let's start five podcasts. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So it's also Women in Horror Month right now. And that's such a great time to have your film come out. Creating it, though, is a long process. You've been going at this for a while. How are you feeling now that it's actually going to reach an audience? I think for me, the best word that has kind of summed it up is surreal. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's so bizarre because, you know, this has kind of been Devin in mind baby for so long that to kind of have other eyes on it and other opinions and all of these wonderful insights that people are seeing with details that, you know, were kind of locked in for us in some of these cases, you know, six years ago and, and being able to talk about those and see those details and people actually acknowledging those. It's like, oh, wow, we're kind of rediscovering the film ourselves in a way oh that's fun yeah Yeah, that's that's been so nice it's talking to people like you both actually that like Nora said allows us to rediscover because we finally get to say all these things that we've been wanting to say and talk about the film creatively whether not just like you know oh uh we're choosing this because the budget says this or we're choosing (laughs) we're like hiring this person we're talking to this department like now we actually like get to bring it back to the story that we originally wanted to tell and all the things that like Nora originally wanted to say with the script we finally get to say these things so that's been really exciting that's wonderful yeah that's awesome so now, Nora, we know a little bit about your background, but um, and about sort of your role on the film as a director. It's it's more clearly defined, but we really want to learn a little bit about 
Devin, your role on the film, as well as how you guys met, how you work together, how you collaborate creatively, that whole relationship as, you know, we're two women that work together and kind of created this together. That's something that's just near and dear to our heart and very interesting. So I'd love to hear more about that if you guys are open to sharing. Yeah, yeah, no, we'd love to. Um, Thank you for asking. Uh, Nora and I met at film school, actually, and um, were friends a while before we started working together. Um, we didn't actually work together in a like producer director capacity until Nora's um, thesis film where we were both on set and just kind of flowed so mm-hmm. easily. We would like see each other from across the the set and be like, oh, I know what she wants. Okay, great. And we like found out that, you know, we had such a great partnership and great relationship that right off of that set, um, literally when we wrapped, Nora came to me and said, so I have this feature film. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, I, and No, go ahead, Nora. <laughs> I was just going to say I, I sunk my claws into you as soon as I possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> and life has been hard ever, this, ever since. No, I'm <laughs> No, yeah. And, and that script, um, you know, ended up being um, this, this film that we brought together. And at the very, very beginning, um, we decided that, you know, we wanted to make this movie. We cared about the story. We cared about um, telling a woman's story specifically, especially someone like Mary Shelley, who we feel like even though there was so much about her in history, that her mm-hmm. side of the story hasn't really been shined on enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, we discovered, you know, we need more of these stories. And so we we decided to start the, the production company, Wild Obscura. And through that, we, we made a lot of uh, short films. Um, we've been developing a lot of stories with other writers and other directors um we've created a fiction podcast recently um and just kind of anywhere that we can be telling women's stories that's what we've been trying to do um over the past almost six years now wow that, wow, that's that has really been. great <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible yeah that's, that's so awesome. cool um, Devin, could you tell us a little more about the podcast are you talking about the fiction podcast cryptids that you created Yes. Yeah. That was actually a reversed role um, where it was my directorial debut and Nora produced it. Um, So from there, you can really see that Nora and I really are a melding of the minds and, you know, we're always story and creative first. um, And we are really our partners in the truest sense where, um, you know, everything that Nora writes, I read everything I write, Nora reads um, everything we touch, you know, we, we, go to each other first and we're like, is this good? What do you think of this? What should we do with this? How can we get this made? Um, it really is a joint effort um, in every capacity. Oh, that's so that's valuable really to like have that partnership is so valuable. That's so great. You guys kind of found that. And it's weird how that can happen sometimes where you'll just connect with someone and have this sort of unspoken kind of mm. language. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's really, really cool. So you mentioned Wild Obscura, which for those at home is a, um, it's a content company that, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's dedicated to creating stories by, for, and about women. And as you can imagine, we are absolutely in love with that idea. So (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what your roles are there? Yeah. When we first came out of film school, you know, we wanted to go the more traditional route, get some full-time jobs, you know get money in the bank accounts, um, and (laughs) (laughs) pay our bills, that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, and so we were kind of looking for positions in which we could be telling the types of stories that we wanted to be telling, but also Mm -hmm. be in positions that would allow us to grow as artists and, and to learn. 
And unfortunately, as the industry was when we were kind of first coming into it, there really wasn't room for these kind of, especially these kinds of characters, these female characters that are that are darker, that are more nuanced, that are more complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't really room to explore their stories and why they are what they are. And at the same time, because of our youth and our gender, Devin and I really weren't finding a, a level of, of respect or, or understanding from our colleagues in order mm-hmm. to even try to pursue our own careers. So instead of trying to bark up those kinds of trees, we, we were like, you know what, let's, let's plant our own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And not only support ourselves, but support all of the other women and, you know, femme people who want mm-hmm. to be telling these kinds of stories and these darker lenses. Um, so yeah, it's been just this incredible thank God partnership because there's, there's no way I think nightmare would never have existed without it. And for sure, a lot of um, my own confidence as an artist would not have existed without Devin. That's great that you guys have that bond and are able to collaborate that closely. Thanks. It's it's been (laughs) life-saving for sure. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. That's really great. And it's, it's so important to just kind of like elbow your way to the table right Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that we've sort of discovered doing this podcast and really focusing on women filmmakers is how extraordinary and how hard it is Mm. how extraordinary you have to be in order to do it and how hard it is and it's 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 just so cool to see that you're like kind of creating that space to make it maybe a little bit less hard for people who follow behind you and opening those doors (laughs) no really thank you because we're trying to recognize that too you know i mean part of the reason for starting the company was you know once we get here we want to be opening doors for other people we want um people following us and not having to work as hard as we did um and it was really hard and we met so many um women along the way who who did the same thing we did a lot of um more seasoned producers and, and older women um, and I just can't imagine what they had to go through at their time. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, historically, so few movies, horror movies and genre films have been directed by women. But we've been noticing in the past year or two how many more properties are coming out, especially horror movies that are created Ooh. by women more than ever before. Is that a trend you guys are seeing? And why do you think that might be happening? I'm noticing there's kind of a whole new trend in general, especially these kind of this last decade, it seems, of of finally slowly starting to accept that women have their own unique voices yeah. and agencies. And <laughs> imagine that. I know it's a shocker. I, I don't want to say anything too, you know, ridiculous here, but yeah. <laughs> and you know, I think we're seeing kind of different waves of it all over our our society, everything from the Me Too movement to these new directors mm-hmm. that are coming through to the fact that, you know, women are actually getting nominated for awards or being talked yes. about yeah. um, in these different professional fields. So my my hope is that what we're able to do right now is that we can kind of utilize this moment to kind of come together as a group, as a group of women and just kind of storm the door, break it all the way down. I love that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm just, I am so into all of these new female voices, especially in horror, because I think, and I'm sure we'll get into this more in terms of nightmare, but I think it's, it's a whole new different facet of fear to be explored yeah. that hasn't really been yes. completely captured in a lot of this more male dominated side of the industry. So mm-hmm. I'm just all about 
getting actually scared. So, yeah. <laughs> and who hasn't been through more horrors in their life than women just living life? Right. <laughs> who lives a more visceral life? Than, you know? Truly. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of nightmare, I, I do love this idea that your mission statement is about moving the genre forward with women's voices that it's kind of starting out with your first feature film about being one of the most iconic <laughs> earliest women in the genre. I mean, I'm sure I, I, I'm not, I did not graduate with a history degree. So maybe there's someone that, that, that predates her, but she is who I identify with as a foremother of horror. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about sort of the origin story of the movie? Like, how did you come to start writing it? And, and Devin, how did you, I mean, you told us a little bit, but maybe you can tell us more in detail about how you ended up coming on board. I'll start with the kind of the inception, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. It was about eight years ago, and this was shortly before we actually shot uh, my thesis film uh, together. And I was writing for a different screenwriting class at NYU, and I got trapped in my apartment during Hurricane Sandy. Ooh. And it was, you know, pouring rain outside, this horrible, horrible storm pounding against the windows. And all I had with me was a copy of Frankenstein and a couple candles. Wow. wow. That is such a great origin. I love it. Right? So I proceeded to scare the bejesus out of myself <laughs> and stay up most of the night reading Frankenstein. And, um, and one of the things that really kind of caught my eye was there's this foreword that Mary herself had written about 15 years after the publication that in which she kind of uh, creates this, it mythologizes her own inception of the story, which is this dark and stormy night that we all might know about with right. Byron and, and Percy and all of them coming together to tell ghost stories. And mm-hmm. in that same foreword, she also talks about this horrific miscarriage this late-term mm-hmm. miscarriage that she was suffering that inspired these waking nightmares that led her into the story of Frankenstein, these waking nightmares about her unborn child coming back to life. Wow. And I was floored. And I was like, how the heck have we gone 200 years and not talked about that? How have I as a you know, considerably feminist, woke woman who is obsessed with history and and literature. How the heck do I not know that the beginnings of Frankenstein were about a miscarriage, were about a mother desperate to give life back to her unborn child? Like, it it just floored me. So it kind of, honestly, it made me kind of angry. And so I was like, you know what? Somebody needs to tell this story. Somebody needs to remind audiences that you can't remove Mary and the 19-year-old girl suffering from the loss of motherhood Mm -hmm. from the story of Frankenstein. And so I kind of went deep into Mary's psyche in telling that version of this story. And, um, And then Devin, you kind of came in after I, honestly, I think I was only in one one draft in, right? Yeah, yeah one draft okay. in, um, which at, at that time was really like Nora, um, you know, telling the story of the miscarriage, telling the story of this girl at the time um, who was going through something so hard that like, like Nora said, so many women go through, but right. we never get to experience that. We never get to see that on screen. We never get to tell that story because it's been stifled so much by the patriarchy. Um, and so we really, I thought that that story was so unique and like really did need to be told 
um, that women have been going this through hundreds of years. And um, me as a, as a longtime horror fan, um, I'm always looking to find ways to bring people into the genre. Um, mm-hmm. Nora being one of them, I'm so happy. Convert. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, you know, I really want people to see that horror is more than just these jump scares or these big budget, um, studio Mm -hmm. films, that there is something like Nora said, more visceral, more emotional, more, um, everyday life, everyday horrors of life. Um, and I saw that in Nora's script and I'm like, oh, this, this could be a great gateway film for so many people. Let me bring them in, please. (laughs) 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 Definitely. It's, that's. It's so interesting you say that because it was I had a similar experience um, watching the movie and then doing research for the episode and realizing that it was historically based and realizing the depth of her backstory that I had no idea yeah. about and I and and both Ariel and I were like we're horror fans how do we not know this shit <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> this is insane like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's so much in it and and Nora I mean opened up to me so much about Mary Shelley's life and so much that we don't say in the film and Nora doesn't put in the film but has like allusions to like one of my favorite things if I could give an easter egg here sure. is, yes um, <laughs> at the end uh when Mary has her letter um, and she's reading it, and there is a little package on her desk, um, and it's supposed to be Percy Shelley's heart, because she actually uh, kept his heart. This is real. Wow. She kept his heart with her um, after he passed away, oh which is goodness. the darkest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not not dark. <laughs> But also, like, uh, wow, she was the OG goth. She, oh yeah, oh yeah. I she wore it around like... her neck. Oh wow. Yeah. I thought the whole graveyard thing was intense, but no, no. <laughs> it goes she went and darker. topped it. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love it. I know, <laughs> I know right? It, it's it's so passionate, and mm-hmm. and you know, and and I think it it also really does showcase how much the love story between the two of them was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, that's great. She's a beautiful, tragic figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the press materials for the film, Nora, I read that you feel like your own experiences are not unlike Mary Shelley's. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. So this is kind of trippy. I'll be honest. Okay. Um, okay. So <laughs> when I started writing this, it was originally intended as kind of a straight biopic you know, right. something BBC might put on. Um, very kind of boilerplate, here are the events of her life. Because they're fascinating events. Um, but as I was writing it, I was under this wonderful mentorship of another screenwriter named Danny Strong. And Danny looked at the script and he was like, okay, Nora, nobody wants to see a writer writing at their desk for two hours. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and I was like, fair point. Um, and, but... From that, this idea somewhere down deep in the recesses of my mind of of actually exploring the writing process through Mary's experience mm-hmm. came to mind. And and from that, as I was writing, you know, um, I had no plans for Victor or any of the world of the novel to actually come to life. Um, but suddenly... Victor was on the page. He was talking to Mary and this character I had no plans for, had no idea about, was suddenly having these conversations about creation and about abandonment and about, um, you know, what it is to give life 
and and um, be responsible for that. And it, it, I kind of pulled on that string and kept going. And suddenly mm. the world of the novel came alive around her. And wow. I was trying to kind of replicate my own experience where, you know, there are times where you sit down as a writer and, you know, while everybody else might see you as kind of this crazed person, you know, talking to themselves, looking at the window, randomly bursting up, walking around the room and then sitting back down. Um, in our minds, we're actually, you know, in this other world. We are, we are living it. We are seeing it. These characters are talking to us. We hear their voices. We can, you know, actually explore the, the depths of this story. And so as I was kind of experiencing that and seeing that, um, I decided to kind of bring that into Mary's story because yeah. I actually read in her letters that she was experiencing kind of a very similar thing and and how Victor really was this symbol of Percy to her. And so she'd see Victor in her real life. Oh, she'd that's see Yeah. And so it, it was not necessarily to show any form of of craziness, but to show kind of the craziness of the creative expression and yeah. especially the writer's experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is that why you had the same actor play Percy and Victor then to show that she was really seeing them as the same? Yeah, it was. And I actually kind of go so far as to have um, most of the characters yeah. play a double mm -hmm. role. That's great. And very much kind of as my thesis to say, well, if Mary saw Percy as Victor and if Elizabeth is this beautiful conglomeration of, of what I assume to be kind of her idealized version of woman in the society as well mm. as her idealized version of her own mother and what she mm. wants oh, that okay. to be yeah and and again she sees claire as this kind of character who fits better in this world who understands how to play the societal game a little bit more so mm -hmm. seeing both of those characters reflected in her novel and and then again going back to these journals and these and these um letters that she was writing and then especially going into the monologues of the creature itself, a yeah. very clear idea started to come to mind of, of who Mary actually saw herself as. Oh, that's so interesting. You talk about going back to these journals and stuff and like the primary sources, of course, <laughs> makes me think about your history background. And <laughs> yeah. you got it. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I would love to hear the ways in which that background of really, you know, loving history maybe informed the way you approached directing this film so much so much so i mean i think i came to it with the idea that okay i know i'm not making a biopic i know that i'm making some pretty large hysteric historical changes um but it really came down to every single change that i made was ever always purposeful and always intentional. And it was always about bringing it back to the experiences that Mary might have had that seemed to lend directly to the writing of the novel. And because, you know, obviously I had to condense the timeline and I had to mm -hmm. eliminate a certain amount of her children because in an hour and a half, you can't watch a woman give birth <laughs> to right. four children. Yeah. <laughs> the two were rough. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I could have watched her lose six. <laughs> exactly. And so my hope was to kind of give the emotional core of Mary and the novel that she inspired mm -hmm. um, and hopefully inspire the people who see that to then go and do their own research and to know more about her and to know the truths about her. Because I think Mary's been really jilted 
by history yeah. and by a lot of yes. these male male historians, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's time that she step out from behind her monster and that we admit that, you know, this is her story. This mm-hmm. is her heart and to mm-hmm. call to another fan base. This is her horcrux. You know, it's a piece of her soul. (laughs) Yeah. And if I can jump in there, I mean, that was always the goal with the film was to make this historic character approachable and Mm -hmm. relatable to modern audiences. Um, We feel like there's always these biopics that they have a distance from modern audiences for some reason. And we really wanted Mm. to like try to experiment what it would be like to lessen that distance and to really like bring in the audiences to relate to these characters in order to see that like these people were us they are Mm -hmm. us um Mm -hmm. and and i mean one example of the way that we did that um outside of nora's writing was casting diversely which was such a big thing for us we really wanted people to see themselves in these historic characters um and that was always a goal with the film yeah that did stand, definitely stand out when we were watching it was I, I thought it was very graceful in the way that it was just sort of a non thing. We just included a diverse cast that <laughs> definitely stood out as a positive and a way to modernize it without pulling it, making it feel a historical. I don't know. I, I really appreciated yeah, that as an great. audience member. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Thank it, you. Yeah. It's, so it's weird. Cause not a lot of people are pointing it out. Um, oh, so oh. I feel like we did a good job if people yeah, aren't noticing absolutely. that that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, you guys talked about it being a biopic before you changed it to its current iteration. I know you were talking about wanting to show more of Mary's emotional state and her interior life. But <clears throat> there's also a lot of horror elements included there. Devin, is that some of your influence as a lifelong horror fan? it's it's a little bit um i would say it's also um a little bit from our other producers as well rob menzies and gabriel rosenstein who are also um big time horror fans Uh um but you know all of it really started from the script that nora gave us um she just had more horror obsessed producers kind of (laughs) expand and push on and we're like oh no this this is horror like go 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 push 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 (laughs) um (laughs) but it was it was always there um it was always in Nora's original script. So we touched on this a little bit earlier about the way that Mary is presented kind of as a complicated, imperfect character who, you know, has relationship problems and jealousy and maybe isn't always super focused on her child because <laughs> of what's going on. And and I do think that there is a lot of times when you have a film that maybe has a more feminist vibe to it. There's like a, a desire to sort of lionize these characters or mm-hmm. like Wonder Woman them. And I love those movies. Those have a place. But there, I also feel like there's something very important about showing kind of complicated, even mm-hmm. anti-hero women. Was that something that you was important to each of you as well with this character? And is that part of what makes this a feminist film for you in any way? Uh Yes, is the very quick answer for that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, 100%. I think that was something that Devin and I had to fight tooth and nail for the entire Mm -hmm. time. Um, Because I think you cannot remove the darkness from Mary's story. Right. You know, you cannot remove the nuance to her character and, and who she was because, you know, again, this is a woman who really does believe in her self-worth. She really does believe in the feminism that her mother was promoting. She does believe in, in kind of this idea, these ideas of free love and, 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 and freedom and to be able to be her own person and artist. 
but she was also married to one of the biggest womanizers of the time, you know, and, and she was also being led often by the men in her life. And because, and that's a testament to her time and, and also a testament to the fact that women have always had to fit themselves into the man's world and they have had to change themselves and, and sometimes become more manlike in order to survive in that world. And, Mm -hmm. and so what we wanted to do, was to show a woman who is inherently complicated, but in all of the feminine ways, Mm -hmm. in very feminine ways that she isn't perfect. And that it's, it is in fact in her imperfections that lead her to be able to tell this kind of story. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. But we definitely got a lot of pushback on that, you know, really from both sides, you know, I think, it was interesting. We definitely got some of the male perspective of, and and I hate using this word, but it, to quote, you know, well, she's such a bitch, mm. you know, ah, gotcha. and, or, or another favorite horrible word, you know, she's so hysterical, mm. you know, these, mm. and, and, and that would immediately tell you kind of a lot more about mm-hmm. the person saying that than it was telling yeah. you about Mary, but yeah. um it was really interesting to kind of have to push back and be like, well, no, just because she is complicated doesn't mean that she's evil or wrong or bad. It it, it means that she's suffering trauma, frankly, yeah. you know, and for, for instance, you know, with her child, you know, some people might see that as, oh, you're a bad mom. And others might see it as, oh shit, that's postpartum depression. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and so there was definitely that side. And then there was definitely also the female side where women would come to us, like you said, with the, this isn't feminist because you show this woman has flaws. Mm. And, and I've always been a proponent. And I think Devin and I talk about this all the time in that, you know, what makes a woman strong is her complications, is yeah. her layers, is are her deep emotions and the way that she reacts to those. And, and to completely kind of, castrate a woman that's a weird yeah. word to choose but uh and and just make her this perfect example is almost you know siding with the patriarchy in a way yeah sure mm-hmm. well i mean i think we get so socialized to be nice mm. smile be pretty all of those things so that when i see complicated women that feels like rebellion to me right. i don't know yeah i feel empowered by complicated women i mean i'm yeah <laughs> you show me a badly behaving woman and i'm gonna be like absolutely absolutely so in the movie it seems like you were trying to communicate to audiences obviously there was a lot of things you were trying to communicate but one of the things was that mary sort of sees herself as the monster identifies with the monster how did you come to that interpretation? Can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. I'll I'll start. And Devin, I'm sure you can expand on this because yes, this is also something that we workshopped a lot, you know. Um, and so for me, it really came down to, again, when she was looking at the – talking about the comparisons of Percy and, and Claire in the roles in, in her novel, uh, it made me start to think, oh, well, who is then the monster, right? Uh, and, yeah. mm-hmm. and you see – in so many film adaptations of this novel, they completely bastardize that character by making him either mute or, or, you know, evil or dumb or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and what's funny about that is because the original novel, right? It, that's one of the most eloquent, thoughtful, emotional, powerful characters I've ever read. And, and it's 
interesting because when you go back and for me when I went and read the novel again after knowing where Mary was in her life when writing it suddenly every single thing that the monster said everything the creature said felt like a direct journal entry from Mary oh wow it felt like her words this this creature that was just so desperate for acceptance and understanding and love and who'd been abandoned by its own creator by the person who had propped it up and given it all its power and told you know like given life that person abandoned them and just mm-hmm. left them to have to stew in the society in this world alone with no help and that sounded really similar to yeah. <laughs> you know Mary's experience in life right oh, and yeah. Yeah, and I think we point. have, you know, there's an easy way to correlate. Oh, okay, Mary is the creator. Right. Right. But there's this beautiful and terrifying line in the novel that I definitely stole and put in the movie where <laughs> the creature says to Victor, you are my creator, but I am your master. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, wow, wow. That sounds like a woman silenced and looking for any form of control that she could possibly find. And, and I think that really felt completely like a direct foil uh, within the creature's experience and arc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly it. It's, it's the universality of a woman feeling like she's silenced and powerless in this world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the best things for me coming out of this movie and having it kind of make me understand her life in a way that I had absolutely no idea about before, including her mother with us. We were both like, how did we not know this? <laughs> um, <laughs> was I, I just kind of fell in love with this. It's tragic, but also incredibly beautiful that from the loss of her children and that the, she channeled that into the creation of this story that is immortal. Right. You know what I mean? Right? Like it, we know who Lord Byron is. We we you've likely heard of Percy, but of the people in that dark and stormy night, no one has had the sort of longevity. If 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 immortality is having your name continue after you are gone, mm. no one has the kind of immortal longevity that, that Mary does, and that's incredible. It's so incredible, and I find it so tragic in a perfect, yeah. perfect you know. Uh, something to go with this novel because it's she basically couldn't really give real life through her womb except for one final child Mm -hmm. right but she gave birth to this novel that is still one of the most popular books 200 later 200 years later so in essence she did give birth to an immortal child yeah Yeah. beautiful (laughs) yeah one of my sort of favorite things in terms of the symbolism in this movie, and there's a lot, like you talk about how characters take on different characters, you know, different actors take on different characters. But uh, one of the most powerful ones for me was the intermixing of blood and ink mm-hmm. and how she's literally bleeding onto the page. Can you talk a little bit about what made you guys decide to use that, that, that sort of symbolism and that imagery? Yeah, definitely. Devin, you want to start? Oh, I was just going to say it wasn't there at first. And I don't know, Nora, Mm. if you want to talk about the journey, but um, before it it wasn't ink. Um, Oh, okay. Nora, yeah, go ahead. Go on. No, please go on. (laughs) I'm like, nope, you're the storyteller. Fill in here, please. (laughs) (laughs) I prep her up. She can, she, she, then she takes it over and 
masters it. <laughs> well, now I'm now I'm trying to remember what was it before that. There was sand. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of Mary creating things from the world around her. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Nora kind of internalized it um, in a way that ink became, in a a weird way, ink became the the internalization of Mary Mm -hmm, creating this world. Oh, you're so right. You know, it's so funny. Having started writing this eight years ago, Devin and I started taking it out into the industry (laughs) about six years ago, and we shot it two years ago, and there's been about 34 drafts or so of the script. (laughs) Um, Wow, wow, wow. You know, there's definitely, I'm like, oh, where? what oh right that that was so cool Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was in that it was basically you know we kind of came down to there was a couple moments where unfortunately our budget kind of got a little slashed and um it led us to really kind of think more creatively and again Uh kind of take further and further steps into mary's psyche and so i'd always had water as um, a, a really important element to Mary's life right. um, because I actually took that from her real life, sadly, where a lot of the deaths surrounding her um, mm-hmm. were water-based. Right. And, uh, you know, so even crazy. that miscarriage that we do see at the beginning of the film where she's put in a bath of ice with Percy, that's true. That's real. She did lose her baby in, in a bath of ice and it was barely stayed alive. And that was an image that had always stayed with me was this idea of, of, Percy carrying Mary into a bath of ice where she would bleed out and, um, and what that would feel like. And so then when looking into the novel itself and having these moments of Mary kind of discovering her own voice and her own power through the novel, um, you know, there's, there's moments where there's violence and I would think, well, these characters wouldn't bleed blood. They're made of ink. They are of her and and so they would be made of ink. And so that's where this idea of, of blood and ink kind of came together. Um, and it all came very together back to the miscarriage. And everything in the whole film, I think, really comes back and centers around that miscarriage where mm-hmm. um, she's writing and the ink and her blood come together mm-hmm. as she is then put in a bath of ice. And those three liquids basically become her life force throughout the rest of the film. And, and she can't tell the difference between the two because the story is bursting out of her. It is literally becoming her, you know, she later has almost another, I, an image of, of, of a miscarriage of ink. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that almost being again, kind of a symbol of again, her writing and the way that this story was just, coming out of her um almost like the baby was coming out of her that's <laughs> perfect as as that is <laughs> such a it's such a perfect marriage of visually striking but also like very thematically resonant oh thank you <laughs> yeah you know i just yeah i love that she was her life's blood was essentially interchangeable with the ink that she was using to create the story it's just really cool especially when you add into it like you know the idea of you know bleeding and miscarriages and all that stuff and it all just becomes like one thing and then from that is Frankenstein is it's just you're working on a lot of levels my friend (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you and thank you honestly for noticing that you know it's um those were the kind of details that that were always hardest to convey in the script and to to potential partners but that I always knew were going to be the heart of the story yeah Mm -hmm. yeah 
One of our favorite things about your movie, too, was um, the performance of the woman who played Mary Shelley, Alex Wilton Regan. Mm -hmm. She was phenomenal. Wow. Yes. Just yes. she shows so many emotions. Most of the film focuses on her face. Um, she's just phenomenal. But she had to be really emotionally vulnerable in the film mm -hmm. in order to get all of that across. So how do you get actors to trust you in that way? And do you ever find it more or less challenging to get that level of trust as a woman director on set? Mm. That's a or a producer, question. Devin. I would love to hear from you, too. Yeah, Dev, do you want to talk about the kind of production that we set up? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, for us, it was really important to create a safe space on set. Um, to allow Nora to reach that place with her actors, we felt like, you know, every hire mm -hmm. that we made, every scene that we did, everyone had to be involved, they had to be knowledgeable, they had to be respectful. Um, and that was always a big thing for us. And, you know, the very, very first night before we started, we sat everyone down in one room and we're like, you know, we're working with a lot of very, very sensitive uh, material here a lot yeah, of things yeah. are triggering um we want you to know this is a safe space you're always welcome to talk to us um we want this to feel like a community we want this to feel open we want this to not feel like you know a place where you're not going to be heard um and the and the cast were in that room as well and and I, everyone responded so well to that um that I think that ultimately helped. And Nora, you can talk about working with actors creatively, but I think ultimately that helped the actors get to that place and the crew respect the actors getting to that place. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite moments from set was um, the rape scene. It was a weird thing to say. I, I know. I'm so sorry. I, I just heard that. <laughs> you do not want Clifton. Replay her. Um, my favorite thing on set uh, was the crew during a very sensitive scene. <laughs> um, but everyone was so quiet for a good hour and literally tiptoed as Alex and um, our other lead who played Percy Shelley, Julian Gaello, um, were getting into that headspace, you know, um, and they allowed them to have the room and they allowed them to um, explore that and just took a step back and allowed the actors to work. And that was a really beautiful moment where it showed um, production and, and, and the creative coming together. Mm -hmm. I'd like to add that on that night, there was kind of this added weight to it. Um, mm -hmm. At that time, uh, Dr. Ford was being, um, in her hearing for the Brett Ka Kavanaugh. Um, oh my hearings. God. <laughs> it was literally wow. that night. Yeah. Wow. And this I is think... just like a story of just strange uh, coincidence. <laughs> oh, you have, honestly, no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, t we'll tell you a crazy one about the final day. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but this one, I think because of that added weight, there was this kind of sense from everybody around, everybody involved, that we knew that telling this story could help women like her, you know, that could, it could be something that had more weight, had more importance than just this one scene, just this mm -hmm. one story. And, and I think, yeah, everything really came down to trust and respect. Mm -hmm. And, and I am a huge collaborator. I come from theater where you cannot do one single piece of that without the other people, you know, and I, I, come from music as well where again you're working with bands everybody has a part to play and so it was essential to me that we have 
um, as Olivia Wilde puts it, no assholes on set. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a great policy. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. And and also to um, have have room for for the actors to bring their own two cents into it to to be able to put in what they wanted to change and what they felt was uh, emotionally truthful to their characters. So there was actually a lot of uh, pieces that, uh, or a lot of ideas that especially Alex would bring that are in the final cut, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it was about building that understanding that we were making the same thing and that they, we were here for each other. And then within the crew too, it was really important to me that we have a lot of, female influence Mm -hmm. on every aspect and so Mm -hmm. for every department you know I think we had about 70% female crew that's awesome yeah and and I do I don't think this movie could have been made without that Mm -hmm. because I'm not somebody who's like hire women just for the sake of hiring women I I think that if you do it truthfully then you're doing it so that they're they're is influence that is coming from your team. And it was also a matter of, I didn't want Alex to be looking up during, you know, the rape scene and looking up at a room full of men staring yeah. down at her, right. yeah. you know, yeah. and like a woman going through postpartum, through a miscarriage, through a rape, through two rape scenes, one that she does and one she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want her to have male energy being at the forefront around her. And so that was it was really wonderful to basically just have this whole slew of women all kind of having different emo- emotional experiences throughout the film you know mm. um during the miscarriage scene for instance we really only had women out there um supporting Alex and keeping her in the zone and there would be multiple times where I'd look around and I'd see somebody crying not painfully mm. but kind of like oh I'm Ooh. feeling this I yeah. I I know this feeling and and it was it was really a beautiful bonding experience for all of us uh, and the men on set as well. There yeah. was just mm-hmm. true respect and 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 understanding. So for me, it, it always comes down to that. I don't think you can get as good of a performance as you got from from Alex mm-hmm. um, without that understanding and and faith with each other. That's great. It definitely came across on screen. She was amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Definitely. she's kind of insanely talented. That's the other part. That I'm <laughs> like, you know, yeah, she's I, just badass. <laughs> I, I looked through her resume and I saw that she does a lot of voice acting. I was like, put this woman in front of the camera, right? Oh. <laughs> yes, she's amazing. I'm so thankful that she hadn't been as much in front of the camera really? because then we got her. Oh, um, but but actually you know also her voice was really inspiring and was one of the reasons why we kind of leaned into a lot of of bringing the novel frankenstein over in kind of um narration form was because Mm -hmm. alex just has this like exquisite galadriel voice that you just want to listen to forever (laughs) definitely you're like i see a strength i shall capitalize on that (laughs) and that is directing yeah Uh, Yeah, exactly uh so i'm actually glad you guys brought up the the marital rape scenes because obviously mm. those are um striking scenes as they should be and uh, I wanted to know if those, if they're based on historical things from her letters, or if it was more um, something that was uh, character or plot driven for you. With every scene in the film, 
uh, I'd say with most of the scenes of the film, they kind of have to be doing two things at once. Mm -hmm. There's a play in terms of how they relate to Mary Shelley's real life. And then there's a play of how these scenes are actually interpretations of moments from the novel. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of that kind of back and forth. And so, no, there is not historical precedence for those okay. two scenes. I'll be okay. very honest about that. Okay. Um, it came from the uh, two things. One, in that I needed to try to convey this relationship that spanned about 10 years. Mm-hmm in a matter of an hour and a half mm. and trying to convey the constant amount of betrayals that Percy enacted upon Mary and the constant amount of slights and play- points of putting her in danger, making her uncomfortable, you know, trying to get her to sleep with his best friends. You know, there's lots of kind of places where he was really diminishing her power and diminishing her voice and her ability to stand up for herself at any point. And so there was, I wanted to show that and capture that in a single scene. But then I also wanted to relate it to Frankenstein. And in Frankenstein, you know, you can actually kind of track the novel across the film, but Mm. with Mary's real life characters, um, real life, the real life people in her life. And this is one of the moments where uh, it's around the time when Victor builds the creature and makes it and then completely abandons it mm-hmm. and mm. and betrays it utterly. And so I wanted to show a moment that was true and utter betrayal, something that you cannot come back from, something that you can never forgive. Mm. And as somebody who was kind of going through a similar relationship to Mary, I wanted to bring in some of my own experiences mm-hmm. to that to give – um, honesty to the emotion behind right. it. And then in turn, you know, the second rape scene uh, that happens, it was to also bring in this idea of um, to show very blatantly the change in Mary's character. And the fact that, you know, in the same way that the creature, as we follow in the novel, starts as a very innocent and caring and loving and and desperate for affection creature. Mm-hmm. And ends as a murderer as as the monster that everybody claimed it to be and i wanted to show that through mary's character and show this reversal of power and this reversal of of her own journey in becoming the monster truly gotcha okay that makes and what the one thing i will say historically i wanted to put out there is that i also did it in an ambiguous way Mm -hmm. in that this type of rape that we now deem as rape, because it is, um, was not even considered bad form right, at right, that time. Right. This right. wouldn't have been written about. This wouldn't have been talked about. Um, right. Mary wouldn't have even had a vocabulary for it. Right. So it, it is also to bring into question and to light this, the idea of the relationships between married people at that time. And what was acceptable and what kind of autonomy women actually had with their body, which, mm-hmm. again, we kind of go into further when Mary gets pregnant. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, that that's that's very interesting Yeah, because it was the era of like wifely duties. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's very interesting. 
a man can take what he wants it's it's his home right i also think about there's a very sort of chilling line in this and again i don't know if this is from from uh historical documents or not but where she talks about the monster and and you know all they want is love and Mm. how that is terrifying that when that monster doesn't get that and those are the moments where i was like when when it was happening the second time i was just like i i think i didn't realize how much i was getting what you were saying Mm, (laughs) you know like now your explanation i i was i was getting it and didn't realize i was getting it is that that is her evolution as the monster and that like need for love and not receiving it Right. Yeah, those are definitely powerful scenes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they really are. But I I liked your explanation that brought a lot of understanding to me about why they were included in the film. I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. And thank you also for your critique of those things, because I think those are that is absolutely what we need to be talking about. Right. And and I I definitely as an older filmmaker now, you know, I I'm much less uh, I'm a little bit probably more hesitant to bring scenes like that to life. Um just because I don't know how much we need more of that in our lives. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. I watched that about the same time I watched Bridgerton. And I mm. feel like there's a very different <laughs> vibe to yeah. those two scenes. I think we all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I definitely wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And I think it was, uh, yeah, very thoughtful. And it kind of, it, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Speaking of illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excuse me. One of the questions that I had for you watching the movie and just reading some of your press material was about the lighting in the film and how you wanted to create the lighting and atmosphere to match the historical time period. So was why was that important to you? So I think you guys actually might have mentioned this on the podcast uh, previously, but there's a super cool random historical event that happened that year. Um where there was this massive volcano that went off in Southeast Asia and it covered the world in ash for a year. And it was known as, you know, the year without summer. And, um, you know, there's huge amounts of storms. There's huge amounts of, of, you know, inactivity and being stuck indoors, hence the writing of ghost stories. Um, But it really felt like Mary captured that essence in the world that she was in and put that into the novel you know because they're you know we call it gothic but there's this just eeriness this i this haunting sensation throughout the every page of frankenstein yeah and and i and it felt very visual to me because every time she would describe the landscape and and the way the monster would run across it it was it was so visceral and so i wanted to both capture the essence of, of frankenstein with that as well as the true historical events of the fact that it was a very, very dark and stormy year. Mm -hmm. Um, That would, again, kind of inspire these dark and stormy thoughts inside of Mary. Um, And then, and Devin can get into this a little bit more, you know, um, feasibly how we did that is that we, we, yeah. Yeah, we found this amazing uh, home in upstate New York that, literally was brought over from England during the time that Mary Shelley was living and just placed on this hillside in upstate New York in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which was insane. And um, we met these amazing people. um, The the director over there, John Maney, who have been working really, really hard to restore this historical home um, and bring in all period accurate furniture as well as period accurate 
lighting. And he's actually a lighting expert um, from that time. And so the home was totally decked out with oil lamps, um, wow. which was incredible. And it was, um, you know, every time you go into, into a home, especially one that old, um, and you're like, hey, I have 30 people coming with a lot of equipment, um, you get really nervous, but they really opened up their doors and they let us do everything. Um, and it was really, Safely. literally, it was really important to him. And, and he made a point of this, that we use period accurate lighting. Um, and he was mm -hmm. like, I will get the oil. I will light the lamps for you. Um, the lighting that you see in the uh, red room uh, during the dinner scene with Byron mm -hmm. and the whole cast, um, those giant, I guess, chandeliers had to be pulled down um, <laughs> oh <my laughs> and lit individually. <laughs> and he would do that for us hours before uh, we had to, to go in there to shoot. And because that was so important to him that we showed that lighting. And it was also so important to Nora and our DP or in soccer that we show that lighting and it created this really, um, soft and beautiful, beautiful yeah. look. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. And what a coup to be able to get that because the lighting in the film really makes it so atmospheric and it gives it yes. that spooky quality that lends more to horror, but is also historically accurate. It's perfect. Oh, thank Thanks. you. How was that from like a technical perspective? Did that make it more challenging or or did it give you almost like that, like magic hour all the time? <laughs> well, speaking of magic hour, mm. um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that because that's actually the very funny story of our last day. Okay, um, perfect. perfect. But, you know, uh, generally we had four lights. That's it. That's wow. we shot the film with four lights and I don't think we ever used more than three of them at once wow. um, because we we just had this incredible production designer, Maddie Wall, and our, our art director, Deidre Cotero, who um, were just constantly lighting candles and constantly finding these beautiful placements for all the candles to really kind of let that uh, be the main light source. But it was actually in our exterior scenes that things got really tricky. Oh, um, so <laughs> really? I know. Um, so our final scene, the the scene in which you know it starts in in the bathroom and goes down to the lake, and then as mm -hmm. the sun is finally set, Mary is is alone at the lake, and um, so that whole sequence, you know, maybe in real time takes about ten minutes, um, but. For us, we knew we had, we wanted to do it at night. We couldn't do that. We didn't have the nighttime lights. So we decided to shoot it at dusk. Well, funny thing about dusk is it only really lasts about an hour. Right. Um, <laughs> and we had stunts. We had extra characters. We had water stuff. We had a lot of different things going on yeah. in that scene. So essentially, I think we shot it over the course of about four or five days. Wow. Um, for an hour each day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. That's intense. And it, so the mad rush down to the, to the lake, you know, shoot what we can and call it wraps. Um, but of course, as happens with indie um, films, you know, the last piece of it, the part where Percy actually walks out um, into the water, that was shot on our last day of shooting. Mm -hmm. And we get down to the lake and for the first time, in most of the shoot, we've been very lucky up until then. It just starts to downpour. Oh, no. Like, absolute, complete madhouse. And we're all running into cars and hiding and just 
looking at every different weather app you can find trying to see <laughs> when is this thing going to move because we have an hour and a half and that's all. Oh my gosh. And it was crazy. And, and at the same time, our camera had to be going into this special bag that allows it to go into the water uh -huh. um, without, you know, getting damaged. And so that took about an hour to get on. And so weirdly enough, as we're all panicking and worried, that bag was finally put on and, and as soon, like within 30 seconds or so, Dev, would you say? Oh, yeah. As soon as they were like, okay, camera's set, the skies just cleared. Wow. They, Literally and, the clouds parted. Oh, amazing. <laughs> oh <my God>. And <laughs> you, the image that we actually have is our poster image. And that oh. there's another blue version where you can actually see the details of the clouds were ta was taken immediately as we got down to the oh, lake um, wow. after that happened. And but it was just one of these perfect coincidences that happened kind of throughout the film where uh, the shooting of it, where it's like, that shouldn't have worked out like that. It made no sense. The clouds right. opened up at that moment and we got exactly the right amount of time we needed to finish shooting the film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like to the second. Um, but it worked. And, and I think that's kind of some of the magic that you can see in, yeah. in, those different scenes but yeah that was actually our our biggest lighting challenge <laughs> wow well, that That's was so really funny i'm so immersed in the period of this that when you said we ran to cars on my brain was like wait what cars, what cars? <laughs> i couldn't even imagine cars there <laughs> well good i'm yeah. glad thanks <laughs> definitely so, um, Devin, I did a little bit of reading about you and saw that you are a lifelong horror fan, much like we are. Is there a particular subgenre of horror that you're hoping to work with one day? Oh, well, um, I can talk a little bit maybe about something that Nora and I have cooking. Um, yeah, we would that's love to hear that. our next question. We wanted to know <laughs> what is next for you guys in Wild of Sierra. Tell us it all. Yeah, well, I'll let Nora talk about um, the project that she's writing next. But the the next thing that we have in our slate is something I'm excited about. Um, the thing that always terrified me in horror, and you know, I'm not usually scared because I've been watching so many horror movies, um, has been possession. Um, mm, yeah. That was something I could never really handle. Was um, someone telling me what I can do with my body? Um, right. and not yeah. me having control over it, which hmm, yeah. very relatable. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Nora and I, um, have a fiction podcast that we're working on that she wrote with a collaborator of ours, um, that I'll be directing that is about possession and, um, exploring a woman, um, going through trauma from sexual assault. So that's something I'm really excited about to explore because it's, a subgenre that I'm terrified of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, that's if you want to scare your audience, right? You find the thing that scares you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should be. Uh, it should be interesting. <laughs> that's great. Oh my gosh! Well, I can't wait for that to come out. Please let us know so we can be all over that because oh. that sounds like my jam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Of course. Um, and then on the feature side, I'll just jump in. Um, yeah. We are developing my next uh, writer-director project, and it's called Ashes, and it is also historical horror. Oh, cool. um, yes. <laughs> very cool. And it centers around Scottish folklore and particularly a banshee 
character. Ooh, oh, that sounds great. We <laughs> love folk horror, so that sounds right oh. up our I am so glad to hear that because that is, uh, for me, my my big focus is is folklore and mythology and how to scare people through that. Oh, that's great. Oh, we can't wait to see that. Oh, yeah, I feel you. like there is a hole in the market for a good banshee horror film too. Yes. Right? Right? How have we not had one yet? Yeah, I mean, don't, that's true. I hope nobody else does it. So, yeah. <laughs> TM, TM, it's done. It's taken. <laughs> okay, so we're about ready to wrap up, but I, I had one last question for you guys, and that's, you guys are doing a lot of press around this. You've probably been asked the same questions a hundred times, but is there anything that people have not asked you about, something that you wanted to talk about, it just hasn't come up, that you would like to have the opportunity to talk about? My goodness. Nora, maybe yeah. something about the post process. I don't know if you've been able to talk about that enough. That's yes. Absolutely. Yes, please tell us. So the post-production process of Nightmare was probably one of the best experiences for me throughout the the creation of this. Mm. You know, there's a lot of times throughout making Nightmare where we would look at each other and be like, well, we named it very appropriately. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) But post-production, for the most part, really wasn't that. Um, We had an incredible editor, Scott Schuler, who you know, um, essentially lived on my couch and and edited with me on my living room table for multiple months to make this thing happen, you know, indie budgets. I know. Um, I love indie horror. It's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. I mean that sincerely. I love it. It's such a labor of love. It, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, he was just such a treasure because he just randomly, you know, I'd wake up one morning and be like, yeah, let's go cut another miscarriage scene that sounds fun <laughs> and, <laughs> and he'd come to me and he'd pl- start playing it with no warning and suddenly you know despacito is playing underneath <laughs> the, the miscarriage <laughs> and it would just it would make me die laughing and i would be like oh you know what thank you because there's no levity in this movie i needed some levity in my life thank you. <laughs> uh, and then when we got to bring the film we we uh finished up in toronto at this incredible post house called eggplant picture and sound and they just treated us like we were you know like i felt like meryl streep walking in there i felt so fancy <laughs> And they just, we told them, you know, obviously we were American and they're, they're Canadian. And we told them, you know, like, uh, what do you recommend for food? What do you recommend for lunch? And and they're like, oh, we got you. And so every day there was more Canadian treats being brought in for oh, us to try. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and then at the same time, we were basically mornings, we were doing color with our incredible color uh, artist, uh, Mark Driver. And then in the afternoons, we would go to our incredible full sound team um, in uh, basically the room across the hallway. And so we basically were just kind of welcomed in like a family by this whole place and team. And and it was this really fun – oh, I forgot. Yeah, VFX were just right upstairs, right above mm-hmm. our heads. And so there's this fun collaboration of – we come up with an idea of how to do the ink with VFX and, and then that would inf- uh, influence how the sound effects that we were choosing. And then we'd bring that back to color and Mark would be like, oh, okay, this is how we can really make that pop. And so um, because we got to do it kind of all together mm-hmm. in that spot, it was just this 
incredibly creative and fun week. And wow. Devin and I got to pretend to be Canadian for a week. <laughs> it was really so incredible. I, I just want to jump in here and say real fast that on that side, um, you know, our partners, the Post House Eggplant Patreon Sound, one thing that they did that I really respected was um, they really understood the importance of having parody behind the camera and how much that meant to us as well. I know we talk about it a little bit Mm. um, with crew on set, but I think we don't talk about it enough in Um, Mm post-production. And so they really, really um, made it a point to have a woman in every single department, if not leading these departments. Um, And they really respected our wishes in that way. And I was um, so happy to see someone making an effort um, so that was really lovely to work with them on that. That's great. It's what a nice story. Yeah. <laughs> so so nice. And it's so fascinating to get to hear about how you guys make these films. And I think this clearly was a labor of love. And you can really feel that when you're watching it, that so much care went into it. Definitely. Thank you. Oh, thank Definitely. you so much. I'm so excited to see your next projects. I can't even tell you. Yeah. Thank you. We're addicted to your podcast now. Yes. Thank you. you. (laughs) We were delighted that you would have us. Oh, really? Oh, that's so nice. That means so much to us. So, Nora and Devin, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I thought it was going to be fun, but it was so much better than I was even expecting. <laughs> you guys have been so generous with your time, and I, I just love hearing you guys talk about your craft. I can't even tell you how much that really means to us. Such a treat for us, and, you know, we love horror movies, and we love women filmmakers, so this is just a dream. Um, and you are welcome to come back whenever you want to talk about whatever you want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have an open invitation. Oh, thank you thank so you much so for much. having us. This was such a great time. Thank you for being so... Um, so I did, your questions were wonderful. Oh, that's oh, good. great. Thank you. <laughs> and from two female artists to two female artists and the partnerships there, we're just, you know, really inspired by you. So thank yes. you. Aww. Vice versa. Yes, you have no idea. Absolutely. Awesome. So people at home, Nightmare Wakes, it's available on Shutter now. If you haven't watched it, what are you waiting for? Put it in your eyeballs. <laughs> You're going to have a great time. Yep. You'll love it. All right. All right. So we just finished up our conversation with Nora and Devin, uh, director and producer of A Nightmare Wakes. And that was so fun. Yeah, that was great. They were both fascinating, had such good answers to our questions. I'm very impressed by them. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, and I think I probably said this in the interview, I don't know, it's all a blur now, um, was how my favorite thing about doing this podcast is like, we get to just fall in love with these filmmakers and you know, they're so impressive and so thoughtful and so bossy and all the things that we love and admire. Yeah. And so, but it's always like kind of from a distance. And so to get to chat with them and, and like see they are exactly as we think they are super rad is, it's just cool. It's fun. I mean, we're fun. We're fans of horror, but we're also fans of horror makers. And so that was, I don't know. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so did I. And it's just so interesting to hear more about the creative process because yes. we try to get some of that in our research, but mm-hmm. you can't get that much information about how no. they really come to these conclusions and these ideas. Yeah. So it was fascinating hearing that directly from them. Yeah, definitely. God, yeah. I mean, I I love the process so much, you know, because like one of the things that directors do is the, the deciders, right? Yeah. And so hearing some of how those decisions are made is fascinating to me. 
Yeah. And we learned even more about Mary Shelley, which was great. I mean, yes. that story about how she kept Percy Shelley's heart. heart. Oh, that my God. I had wild. no idea. It's totally That is wild. like God-level gothiness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview, too. And hopefully we'll get to do some more of that in the future. One thing I forgot to do because I was just so caught up in the moment is I forgot to ask them where you could follow them because they have, as they mentioned, a lot of really exciting projects coming up that you're probably going to want to know when it's coming out, right? So so if you want to follow along with any of their projects, as I know I will be, you can follow Nora on Twitter and on Instagram at Nora Uncle. You can follow Devin on uh, Twitter at cinema streets and you can follow wild obscura on instagram at wild obscura films and you should give them all a follow definitely give them a follow so that you can keep track of all the good stuff that these really amazing talented ladies are going to be putting out in the years to come yeah we'll definitely be paying attention for sure all right ariel Uh, i it is the weekend there is a beer <laughs> that I could hear the siren saw, song calling <laughs> from my beer, from my beer, from my fridge. <laughs> Why don't you take us out? Well, thank you guys for listening to this very special episode of the More Deadly podcast. We could not have been more excited to have these wonderful filmmakers come on, and we hope that you enjoyed their inter- our interview with them. And uh, we'll see you next time for our regular episode. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host and good friend Ariel for always teaching me something new. Production on this episode was done by yours truly and edited by Ariel. Our theme song for the show is More Deadly by DJ Chardonnay.